Welcome to a special edition of The Investing Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of The Razor's Edge. I'm joined today by Akram's Razor, also a co-host of The Razor's Edge, and Jay Minsmeyer, host of Value Investor's Edge Live. Those are the two shows that you'll hear on this channel normally. We're doing a crossover podcast. We're talking about the shipping sector, Jay's area of focus, which is in the spotlight as tanker rates in certain segments go through the roof. Price of oil has made oil storage more popular. This has become a real hot topic and was already even beforehand with IMO 2020 and other things. We're going to discuss this, the market in general. Jay, of course, has been tracking the sector for the last decade and has become a leading expert in the industry. While Akram has traded the sector in the past, has some background here, knows these stocks as well. I've followed Jay's work over the last few years for what it's worth, but we should be able to have an interesting conversation here. Before we begin, just you can check out Jay Mintzmeyer's work at Value Investors Edge. Uh, it's available on the Seeking Alpha Marketplace. Investors like hedge fund managers have called this the must-have research on tankers and shippers in general. So encourage you to check it out. And of course, you can also check out Akram Razor's work and analysis at The Razor's Edge, also available on SeekingAlpha.com slash marketplace. Just look for those service names and you'll be able to check them out. Quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be taken as investing advice. The Investing Edge is a podcast of Seeking Alpha. The views any one of us express reflect solely our own views. We'll disclose positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast. So, guys, good morning. Um, Akram, you were kind of the one who was behind this idea, so I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of kick this off. All right, thanks, Daniel. Good morning. Good morning, Jay. Hi, good morning. Thanks for getting this together. Oh, no problem. It was a, it's long overdue. <laughs> so I guess the idea was I was listening to your um, to your interview with the CEO of Frontline, and I mean, obviously, following your work and what's going on in in let's call it the commodity space slash energy markets, and kind of getting to that point where you're like oh okay this is a this is a market where you know it's it's it it's fundamentally been out of favor let's say for how long do you want to call it i mean uh, for forever really since 2000 what 2008 2009 was the last time we really had something crazy yeah about a decade when i saw this whole uh the floating storage trade and the I mean, we've got a lot of things going on in the markets today. So it's obviously got to be very, very interesting for you. But in terms of the dynamics in kind of like a something kind of esoteric for for, for the most part, people are usually are not familiar with, right? This happens what? You went through this. You went through this to a degree in 2015, right? But nothing on the scale of 09. I don't know. I mean, what, what was 2015 like? Yeah, it's, it's been an incredible cycle. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, 2008, uh, 2007 and 2008 were sort of like a bubble. It was kind of the peak of a decade-long globalization cycle, right? China getting into the WTO, global shipping trade volumes just exploding. I mean, it was every segment. It was container ships. It was tankers, dry bulkers. Um, every little rusty bucket ship you could put on the water uh, was making a killing. And, and 2008 was kind of, of course, the peak of that. And in 2009 was kind of the last gasp, second punch of tankers. Uh, they came off their bubble highs and then they got this weird sort of very temporary, but it was a floating storage dislocation. Then everything was kind of just really bad, honestly, until about 2015. We had the kind of the temporary oil crisis, right, in 2014, 15, 16 in the United States. And there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of contango. Uh, but we were talking like five bucks, six bucks over, you know, six months or something like that. Uh, we hadn't seen anything. So not, it didn't come anything close to, to 09. Okay. Or, or now. It, nothing comparable to now or, or 2009. All right. So, I mean, like in terms of, so in, in terms of, let's say, dislocations for people who've been following your work, and I mean, I li- definitely listening to the frontline CEO talking about it. I mean, like you've seen rates now go on the VLCCs from what, $20,000 day rates to to as high as how much? Yeah, it's, it's been ballistic. I think the top print was over $300,000 a day. And and of course, that's those rates are not sustainable. I mean, those are ridiculous rates, but the, the raw number is just eye-popping. And a normal rate for Q2, like right now, a normal rate would be 
15, 20, maybe 25,000. So even seeing 50,000 makes your eyes kind of bulge a little bit and seeing a hundred thousand makes you dance around. And I, I mean, 300 grand, I, my God, it was hard to believe. Yeah. So, and then you're doing that with like, without really any like actual inflation seeping into the system, it's pure profit. And if you're a person following stocks like this, particularly in, in this space, it's like, okay, I mean, you, you literally get the napkin out and you start doing the math and you're like, <laughs> what, what should my company be worth? What's it going to be yielding? How much cash flow are we going to be generating this year, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, I, I did notice on your call, I mean, at least with the, with the frontline the, the front CEO, he was a bit reluctant yet to get into the coming up on, on the quarter into financial projections and, and kind of estimates going forward. But I look at this segment and I'm like, is it time for me to stop wasting time with what, the one of like 80 software stocks out there and, you know, overcovered, overloved names in technology? I mean, look, at times, there obviously these businesses can be very interesting and exciting to talk about versus, uh, what uh, supermax rates and what's going on in dry bulk shipping. I mean, I went through this whole crap in 2008 and 2009 with, with Potash. That was a big thing for me covering that segment, talking to people and learning just the terminology, what's FOB mean and what's this. Like that was actually an impetus for it. But you do look at that sector and there's been an element to the commodity space, which has been, I mean, if you've been trading for 20 years, you look at it, and you've been tempted at different points. There was that little point in 2016 where I came in and I managed, I, like I, I look now in hindsight, I look at it and say I got lucky in terms of being long some stocks from like, you know, the beginning of 2016 till the essentially just to the end of 16. But looking at what's going on in your market with this, let's call it this floating storage trade, kind of creating this, you know, let's call it uh, a windfall. And and the a temporary windfall in the oil tanker market is this something that kind of tempts you in and says you know what maybe this is finally a turn in this carnage that is COVID nineteen and what's going on that you're kind of set up for a cycle a completely shifting cycle in investing when you look at frontline how is frontline actually trading lower today than it was let's say in early January like how do you rationalize that. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? Well, I mean, look, investors have been burned so many times on shipping stocks. And, and a lot of times it's because folks don't really understand what they're buying. They don't understand this is a cyclical commodity stock that is going to, the earnings and cash flows are going to be volatile in both directions. So you got to look at what you're paying. Well, most people don't like shipping stocks unless they're super popular, unless Jim Cramer is talking about them and there's profits been ripping for two years, there's big dividends. Uh, so most of the time when folks come in and buy a shipping stock, it's at 2009, it is in 2016, it is maybe last winter, right? Is at the highest. So most people have had bad experiences with the stocks because they don't follow them on a full cycle. So there's sort of like this bitter taste in people's mouths. And then there's that stock, Dry Ships, I think you and I were talking about it offline yeah. a little earlier, that just burns so many people with so much shenanigans. So there's just kind of like inaccurate trope out there that shipping stocks are all corrupt or they're all messed up or you'll never make I mean, they do have some, I mean, is what's his name still, is Fredrickson still a big holder in Frontline, I don't yeah, John Fredrickson, absolutely big, big holder. He has, he's yeah, so they have concentrated ownership. Absolutely, yeah, he owns like six or seven different companies. But look, Fredrickson's always been pretty fair with the shareholders. I mean, there's been some companies like, look, Frontline got recapitalized in 2011, but that wasn't because Fredrickson did anything shady. It was just because they had way too much leverage and they had to recapitalize. So, look, Fredrickson's been a been a good player in the markets. But yeah, there's been guys like George Economy with Dry Ships, uh, Peter G. Uh, with a few other companies. Um, and, and there's been five, six, seven, eight names that have really taken investors on a ride and done some misleading things. So I think investors are skeptical when they hear about the global economic recession, maybe a depression. And they say, I don't really want to own shipping into a global depression. So I understand that. But I think what people are missing is the upfront earnings that all these companies are pulling in on a daily basis. Look, we're making two or three years worth of profit every couple months. I mean, it's remarkable. Exactly. So that, like, that's where you get into this. It's these it, these benchmarks, and that's where you get into this element of you know, of, look, being a value investor has sucked uh, as far as 
let's call it the last five years. It's, it's been an underperformance. Momentum and growth obviously have dominated. But I mean, when I think back to 2008 and, you know, BRICS and, and, and like you were saying, that, that kind of like the end cycle for, the, for China and the WTO and globalization and part of owning commodity stocks at a certain, the, the pitch then used to be like when we used to talk potash and potash would be trading at like, a you know, I, I think they, they when they, at the time Campitex had signed a deal with China at $1,000 a ton, which was like insane. It was like 7x up over the previous 18 months. And when I would talk to hedge funds then, it'd be like, yo, bro, China and India have to eat. And I would be like, well, I mean, at $1,100 a ton, they may start eating each other, you know? <laughs> but like that, that was like the theme in commodities. When you're sitting here talking about shipping and be like, look, there, there are peaks and valleys, but global trade is global trade. You, it's like, it's not going away. You need to Absolutely. move goods around. And it's like, is there, we're not talking about getting to a point where people are like, oh, uh, you know, the, the replacement, I remember like Tobin's Q was a big thing in like 2000. It would be like, this ship costs more to build today because of the cost of steel and this and that. And, and, and it's worth more actually in scrap, right? You remember the, like in terms of the putting new equipment together was more expensive. And that was something you saw in, in like cranes and all kinds of things at the time. That was wild, yeah. You look at this market today and you and there's a there's an argument that well asset prices have rebounded really quickly it, particularly in let's call it these uh, what had been leading before this uh, before the the coronavirus on this essential let's call it backstop and liquidity from from the central bank and there's a debate and i mean like i don't know if you call it, what's his name talking about it in his letter einhorn as far as uh, inflation and uh, that you know, value investors should should outperform this coming cycle, and that inf- and that the genie's kind of out of the bottle and you can't put it back in. And I mean, when I start reading all that stuff again, that's where like I start getting tempted, and I'm like, you know, is it is it time to focus on commodities? Like, should should I become best friends with Jay? well you know it's if einhorn has nothing else he's going to have revision a reversion to the mean right it's been a brutal brutal what 20 years for value investors writ large i mean it's been a rough cycle even even during 2000 you know 2002 2004 2006 when shipping was crushing it shipping was kind of an exception and shipping wasn't even a value stock right it was just a total like ballistic uh, growth trajectory at that point but look the sentiment is so bad these days in in shipping and all value really all deep value to sentiment sucks but in shipping particularly look i mean you you get it the earnings are through the roof they're probably not sustainable but you know does it matter if they're sustainable if you make five years of profit in six months right I yeah, mean, exactly it's, so well that's that so let's step back there for a second what do you think for example Take a company like Frontline. If you were right now, and, and, and like I know estimating anything from here visibility-wise is, is obviously tricky and there's a lot of variables into it. But if you were looking at a stock like that today, like if you were to guess, what do you think it's trading on, let's call it, a, on a forward PE by the end of this year? Oh, man. Well, a forward PE, if we're looking at 2021, that's – who knows? I don't even want to make a guess at that. If you want to do trailing PE, I can tell. I mean, it's going to no, be so. Like- let's let, let, okay. Let's rephrase that. So it's December thirty-one. You know, end end of the year. What like what do we what what do we think Frontline's doing in twenty twenty? So you've got like obviously you had the, the the kind of soft first quarter. You got the mix. Like what did they get up to on the on on the VLCC's last quarter? Like fifty sixty thousand, I think it was. Yeah, somewhere in there. And in this quarter, it's going to be, of course, in the six digits. So yeah, no, if you're looking at, if you're going December 31st, you got the whole entire annual report in front of me and you're saying, what is the price to earnings um, of Frontline based on today's prices? Oh my goodness. I I mean, somewhere between, I don't know, 0.8 and like 1.5. I mean, it's okay, it's exactly. ridiculous. I think there was a point in 08 where you got down like, you know, sub five, right? But <laughs> like five, yeah. nothing below two. and when you look at something like this, it's like there's an implied assumption here that the that what's happened in the let's call it uh, the energy markets is is not reversing course, right? So, I mean, uh, one thing that's interesting, which which I was thinking of when you were posting on Twitter about uh, all the all the all the people 
that coming out of the woodworks uh, as far as trading, I had like some, you know, random like family friend reach out and was like, ah, I don't remember thinking about buying this energy ETF. And, and I, I, I remember the, the amount of people that flocked into the leveraged ETFs in 09. Well, I was on a prop book and I had been shorting. I was like, you know, one of these perma bears at the time. And like when we got into the beginning of the year, everyone who had not been bearish at all before was getting super bullish on everything. And one area that they all got excited about in terms of rebound was energy. And everybody wanted to buy like the front month leverage WTI contract. Yeah, like guys, do you understand that, that this shit trades on a curve? Like you're going to get crushed by the roll. Like we can go from when you have a spread between, you know, the front month and 12 months out of $20, it's like the, you, you could lose money and oil goes up 60% in the next 12 months, right? Yeah, they, they didn't know what they were buying, right? I mean, they thought they were just buying barrels of oil. They didn't know how it worked. Exactly. So you have kind of a little bit of that dynamic again, where you're like, okay, here's a market where what people don't understand about it is when this, when this dislocation, and this dislocation, you know, as far as negative WTI is obviously epic and historic, but it's a market that self-corrects itself by these, by these factors. That's the nature of, of a commodity business. It's not like trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Tesla stock price. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're seeing that. I mean, look, I mean, storage is so tight right now that you're seeing these tanker rates. Uh, VLCC's printed all-time high of 300,000 uh, last month. And, you know, that's, they're, way, they're a lot lower now. I mean, I think the latest print was like 80,000 or 100,000. So they're, they're off a lot from that 300,000 spike. Um, but yeah, that, that is indeed the market sort of correcting and saying, look, we, we don't have any storage left. Um, and, and you saw that. The WTI, of course, that was kind of a, almost like a paper market fragment. But right, it went negative, like negative thirty-five or something. Yeah, but that's like that. the best way of describing yeah. it, bro. It it is like paper. It's like, you know, there was a guy I remember in Dubai. Family is like North African crude, and when Libya collapsed, like they're getting excited about things going on there and like a greenfield opportunity and this. And I remember sitting at, at having a lunch with with him, and he was giving me like a whole lecture on the energy market. It was like, you know, it's. Uh, Akram, this is what happens. Uh, we know where like energy is finite; it's going to run out. Well, this was 2014, and he's like, "We may go back down to sixty dollars a barrel, but like you're you're never seeing what happened in 2008. That's just never happening again." And like our low, I think our low in 08, 09 was like almost 30 flat. And I was making the argument: you don't really understand how much of that market is financial when you look back on what happened in September of 08. And like, my argument to him then was like. You didn't shut down the global economy. Yes, we had this huge major breakdown, but like in contrast to what's happened literally now, you've actually had a, like an actual shutdown. When you looked at it then, you're like, there's a financial element to your market. Access to credit and these things create distortions. And like, you don't really know how much of your price is based on that element. And then we don't know how much is physical. This time you kind of got the flip of that. Yeah, the, like the financial element didn't break, but you discovered that to actually physically store something when you get to an expiration of a contract, if it doesn't exist, then the contract can tra trade like on paper something r ridiculous, which in this case was negative. Yeah, I mean, it's like the end. It's like thinking about a short squeeze, right? It's just the inverse of that. You got a bunch of guys holding this instrument that have no idea what they're doing, and the delivery comes up, and they don't have anywhere to put the oil, and they all panic, and they all run for the exit, and it's just a short squeeze and inverse. And you look, I mean, it could happen again. It probably won't happen as extreme because they squeezed all the retailers out. Uh, the USO is the main instrument that trades that stuff. And it was like the top owned stock on Robinhood for like a week in a row. And if you want to find a bad stock, and I, I don't want to you know, offend you. I know you follow like FOMO stocks and stuff. But if you want to find a bad stock, go to like the top 10 list of Robinhood, you know, most popular and just go down that list. And maybe one or two of them will be okay. Right, maybe you'll have like a Disney or a Microsoft, but <laughs> like stock number one for like a week straight was USO, and it was like, oh my goodness, these these poor people, and I felt bad for them. You know, I I know you're not supposed to feel bad for people in the financial markets, but I felt bad for these guys because they had no idea what they were buying, and look what happened. Yeah, it's never explained that they don't like they don't get it when they're in like a, a three times leverage fund, like replicating the spot price of something. By the way, I saw this when I was actually just checking up on this for this call. 
There's there's an there's an ETF now that replicates the Baltic dry index price. Yeah, there is. Yep. Is how, what's how does that go? Is that, is that crazy? Look, I mean, it's a good idea on paper. I, I know the guys that are behind it. I, I mean, I, they're trying to do the right thing. What they're trying to do is they're trying to give people a way to hedge their portfolio by giving them exposure to the underlying dry bulk rates. So if someone wants to put like a, you know a little bit of a hedge against like global trade or something like that, they could either go long or short that instrument. So they're trying to create something useful, uh, but the problem is is it just working? So, it's just so thinly traded, right? And then the BDI has just been so brutal the last couple well, of years. That's my point. That, like the BDI yeah. is so volatile, and I would think that that's one of those last kind of somewhat still you know opaque price discovery markets, you know where you have operators dealing with each other where it just doesn't seem like something that needs an ETF, you know? Yeah, I think it would have made sense last. I think if you go back in time to like 2004, 2005, 2006, when you had that crazy run going in all the shipping stocks, I think it would have made sense back then just to offer folks a way to like hedge, right? Hedge their shipping stocks. They could go like long shipping stocks and short the B-Dry, or they could go long B-Dry and short the shipping stocks. Yeah, as a trading instrument, 100%. Yeah, you're exactly, right. Exactly, exactly. But now I don't think it really, I hate to offend the folks, they are nice folks behind it, but yeah, I just don't think it serves a purpose. The shipping stocks themselves are very well capitalized, very well ran. They're cheap already. There's no reason to have this ETN. All right. So if we rewind a little bit from where we were, going back to what what started us on this topic if you look at a, stock, a company like frontline and going i think we we like segued a little bit on this floating storage trade once you store crude that crude has to come off eventually right you're selling it forward you're locking it in so if i'm going to get excited about putting oil in a tanker and riskless arbitrage which by the way like what's what is it right now as far as where are they breaking even it get 100,000 110 like at what point does it make any any sense? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it changes every day, of course, and you'd have to pull up the latest futures spread. And of course, it depends if you're, are you talking three months or six months or 12 months. Yeah, so let's say six months. Yeah, roughly six months is still around 100,000, maybe a little bit under, maybe about 80, 90,000. Which is still pretty freaking ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's quadruple what you should normally expect. And just for other listeners, I know you understand it, but you know, a normal rate at this time of year is around 20 to 25,000. And the way these tankers work is a VLCC has a cash break-even of around 15,000. And they have an earnings break-even of about 25,000. So most of that 10,000 is just depreciation, right? We're talking about gap earnings and, and operating cash flows. So it, look, a normal rate around here is like 20 or 25. So normally in Q2, these companies are breaking even or losing money on like a gap basis, they're slightly cash flow positive. On the entire year, these companies are gonna earn about 30,000 on a VLCC. So they're making $5,000 a day all year long on their VLCC. They're making about 15,000 in cash flow. So take a rate of like 150 or something like that. You're making 135,000 per day in operating cash flow. You're making 125,000 per day in gap earnings. That's 25 times the normal level of earnings. It's not just 30 times four or 30 times five. It's actually 25 times the amount of gap earnings per day. So, I mean, the, again, so like if I, if I come back and ask you then, like, is, do you just think it's the, there's a, there's a lack of, let, let's, let's say, is it the crowd? Is it algorithms aren't trading these stocks? What, like, what do you think it is that explains when we get something like this, where, I mean, frontlines, where frontlines trading today at eight, $9. I mean, yeah, it had a good year last year, but again, that was like kind of like the bottom of the shipping market was probably 2018, right? So 2019 was kind of a structural rebound year for, for your industry, right? Wouldn't you say that? Oh yeah. 2019 was an amazing year for us. I mean, we, 2019 is the best year I've ever had. And if I never have another year like 2019 in my life, that's okay. I mean, it was, it was that good. Um, but no, I mean, looking at some of these stocks, like you say, Frontline, and there's so many others too. I mean, Scorpio Tankers, DHG Holdings, there's so many other stocks. And, and they're all trading, they're above the lows, right? They're not at 52-week lows, but almost every single one of these stocks is closer to the low than the high, which is just remarkable. And look, I'm having hedge funds right now, a couple of them, not, not a lot, but I've had a couple hedge funds reach out to me in the last week or two, asking me if they should be shorting tankers. My gosh, I, I just there's just such. Yeah, a so, what do you say to them when, when, like, when that call starts with like, you know, hedge fund accents, like, "Hey, bro, what's the rationale here? Are are they looking at basically 2021 and being like, you know, the oil markets is going to be a fucking disaster? I mean, that's part of it, but what they're really looking at is they're saying 
the global economy is completely hosed, right? I don't think maybe they're wrapping their heads around the storage play quite correctly. And they're also looking at this huge jump in stocks. They're looking at a stock chart from like March to May. And they're saying, oh my gosh, the stock is up 50% in two months. It's like, you know, Nordic American tankers, it was this big one. It was on like Jim Cramer. It was on Robin Hood. It's on this thing called Wall Street Bets. Uh, on Reddit, yeah, like if your stock is on Wall Street, <laughs> okay, if your stock is on Wall Street bets. Like dude, you're Wall screwed. Street bets, <laughs> is great man. Like, there's, oh, that, man. there's that one dude who's up to twenty million. He's, he's, he's uh, Wall Street bets. So you know we have these stocks, and they're saying, look at all this retail sentiment, and there's like this hatred for retail, and like you know how we, you and I were kind of joking about how the the top ten Robinhood stocks all suck, but we're just kind of having fun, right? We don't. I mean, we're just ha- we're just saying that we're laughing about it. But there's hedge funds that legitimately just short everything that retail likes just out of like, you know, cause they think they're smarter and, and, you know, over time they are smarter, but I think this is one time where retail is clearly picked up on something that the hedge funds are kind of behind the curve on. If there was huge retail in like, again, the tanker space isn't trading like, you know, a biotech that is claiming to have discovered the cure for the coronavirus. You're not seeing like a stock hasn't gone up eight, nine, 10 X, right? We haven't seen crazy weird, distortions stuff to that extreme no not so at all. But the no. market is still i i would say at least you know from a bird's eye view you're obviously more in the weeds of it the, the way i look at going back like look 2019 was a good year you said amazing for stock prices in the shipping space in general but i guess my point or question to you was like fundamentally you have more of a balance in your industry oh absolutely yeah if you look at I remember 05 to 09 really well as far as the building and the demand and the shipyards and like the focus on on everything going there as far as everyone being capacity constrained. And now you have like from what I can tell is really old fleets and almost nobody really order book wise. No one's really let's compare it to like the oil market and production in terms of like cheating or going out there and getting a little bit aggressive on on adding capacity. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a beautiful setup. We have basically the oldest fleet balance we've ever had. And, and when I say that, I mean like the average age of the ships. The VLCC average age right now is almost 10 years old, which a you know, ship like a VLCC, very large crude carrier, normally lasts for about 20, 21 years. So in a perfect market where there's zero growth, right, and nothing ever changes and everything demolishes at like 20, then you would expect the age to be 10. Right, that would be a zero growth, like totally, but you know, broken flat market. Right now, the average age is like nine point eight, so we're basically at zero growth expectations built into the fleet. Meanwhile, the order book, right, which is all the ships that are waiting to be delivered in twenty and twenty one, twenty two, is the lowest or second lowest in all time history. So, I mean, it's just a remarkable market balance on the supply side. Now, the question mark becomes, you know, your demand side, and that's I think a lot of folks are looking towards twenty one, and they're saying, what if we have an extended you know, global depression, right? And we have like this OPEC cut that they did for, you know, May and June. What if that OPEC cut goes on for like two years? And then they're saying, well, you know, tankers aren't going to do very well and so on and so forth. And I think there's merit to that concern. But I think what those folks miss is the valuation points that we're starting out on. These stocks are Correct. not expensive that, at that, all. Exactly. So, I mean, that's kind of where you get into that, like that, that challenge where it's like, all right, uh, we can sit here and have a debate about, what happens over the next two years, but from a feast or famine standpoint, if you're going to generate the equivalent of, you know, five years of plenty in six months and the stocks don't, aren't trading anywhere remotely related to that, then why are you looking at them? Just from a, a, is it, is it like a price bias standpoint where I just look at a chart and be like, yeah, this is trading here and it was there and okay, it's had a big move recently, but like, is there just a whole generation of investors? Because I mean, this goes back to my point with you. The last time I bought a shipping company was 100% 09, maybe 2010. So like, it's an entire segment of the market I haven't traded uh, for 10 years, essentially speaking. A reason for that is, is lack of, interest excitement around it and then like let's call it the perception of buy and hold you know always working out is is it like just a lack of in- investor education and you have a setup here which could potentially be 
let's call it like a shift in, a, in an entire cycle, which is, has gone on for a decade that occurs against this backdrop. I mean, that's kind of, I guess, what I'm kind of looking for here. Like if I'm frontline, what am I doing or, or, or any one of these com- tanker companies right now? When I'm looking from a capital standpoint, if I was to ask you, and I mean, like, I, I, we didn't get any of that on that call because, again, they're coming up on earnings, but you obviously must have some opinions. So let's say with this excess cash flow I'm going to generate over the next six months, and let's say it's something that's you know equivalent to several years of plenty, what am I buying back stock? Yeah, it depends on the company specifically, right? And I, I think Frontline, Frontline is a great company. Frontline trades at a little bit higher of multiples than some of their peers. So I think with Frontline, they would, they would first of all, they would probably take their leverage down a little bit. I think your leverage is a little bit too high. It's about 65, 70% debt to assets. I think they would probably bring that down to about 50%. It's a, it's a very healthy number for shipping. 40 to 50 in shipping is a very healthy leverage. So I think, first of all, they bring that down a little bit to that range. I think second of all, they look at the stock and if the stock is still super cheap, uh, yeah, they do a, a, some repurchases, but if the stock is starting to trade a little bit higher, which I think it might after earnings, I think they just pay a big dividend. And I think the dividend yield at today's prices, I mean, we're going to be talking uh, somewhere between 15 and 25% dividend yield. And that's not even paying out 100% of cash flow. That's just paying out part of their cash flow. It's going to be somewhere between 15% and 25% dividend yield at this price. Yeah, which is like the dividend yield you typically would get on a distressed type of asset, right? Like the the trapdoor dividend yield, right on the way which down. We've seen obviously a lot in the in the energy sector of late, which is essentially your your dividends about to disappear versus right, <laughs> which is yeah, 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 that that would be like the the last gasp, you know, we're about to cut it versus it's just starting to be paid out. So yeah, it's a it's a very interesting. It's like the opposite sort of swing. And look, these dividends are not, you know, if they were paying a twenty five percent dividend yield, that might only be sustainable for a couple quarters, right? So it's not, you know, this is going to be a twenty five percent dividend yield for five years. Um, but you know, these these companies, and I just want to get this point out real quick. These, these companies have the best balance sheets they've ever had. There's the the fleet balance we just talked about is great. The valuations on any metric. I mean, you want to use enterprise value to EBITDA. You want to talk price to NAV, net asset value. Uh, you want to talk price to earnings. Uh, give me any ratio. And these stocks are basically the cheapest they've ever been. Balance sheets are the best they've ever been. The supply side of the fleet's the best it's ever been. They're going to earn five years of earnings in six months. So yeah, what's the disconnect? Look, I think nobody's really made consistent money I mean, we've done pretty darn good, but we're like cycle traders, right? But no one has made significant money in shipping for like 10 years, right? So everyone has like this bitter taste in their mouth. And every yeah, time the shipping no stuff runs, you don't, you, you exactly. do not, you're, you're not like, you have not attracted fast money. You have not attracted, you know, the dumb money. Uh, it's, that's, that, that's where you go back to this whole element, right? I mean, where you're just like, this is, it's, it's been out of favor for so long where I could maybe in theory, when I look at it, rationalize what's going on here as being like, you know what? It's just, this is like, this is what it looks like before the turn and anything. This is how stock prices go up four or five, six X sometimes is that you get to a point where no one's really participated in a while that it's, it's, it, it, it creates this kind of, you know, irrational disconnect. And, and, for the skeptic, it's like, yeah, I don't want to own these stocks. If no, like, remember when you want when you really want to make money off of something, you want to get there first, and then you, you like you want to be sitting there, you know, waving your fingers in, <laughs> telling everybody else to come join the party, right? Right, and, then and like that's what be- <laughs> like you want your se- you want yeah. your sector to get popular, like you, we, we, you want your Jim Cramers of the world uh, to be, you know answering phone calls about what do you think of X, Y, and Z shipping stock again? Right, right. And then when my neighbor walks over, I mean, obviously my neighbor knew who I was, it would make sense, but my random neighbor, hypothetically, I jump in an Uber, right? And my Uber driver starts asking me about tanker stocks. Then I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to get out. Yeah, of and point. that's when you get, but like, that's like when you get a little bit antsy, but that's also the point where you probably start enjoying, the, you're, 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 you become a frequent guest on CNBC, yeah, it'd be, it'll be interesting if it if it hits that, you know. And I think it's just shipping has not had a sustainable run of profits, of earnings, of good returns. Uh, look, since like 2007, 2008. So you know, there's been you know, it's been 12 years. And I, I hear this all the time from people. They say, look, this has been the greatest bull market in history. 
and if shipping can't make a profit in the biggest bull market in history, then it's just terrible industry, blah, blah, blah. And okay, yeah, but you're missing the point that shipping has its own supply, its own demand. And shipping was extremely oversupplied in 2008, right? It was such a hangover that it literally took 10 to 12 years to work through it. And now we're at the, we're at the exact opposite, where the supply picture is better than it's ever been in history. And you know, it doesn't take a lot. It only takes one little thing. And exactly, rates a little ballistic. bit move at the margin when you've exactly. got a balance like that in an industry like that. But I mean, that's where you go, where you come back to. Look, let's let's talk a little bit about the macro kind of big picture. Because look, if you are looking at shipping, you obviously have to have a view on energy and global trade and China relations, the U.S. Are we looking at, at an environment where if I was to push back to you on this and be like, look, the, the U.S. is getting much more nationalistic. We're going to see this move from, let's call it global efficiency, you know, in terms of supply chains to resiliency, right? Where profits and maximization isn't exactly driving things like structural independence and what do you want to call it? Uh, when you when you when you have a supply chain and you're kind of like duplicating uh, redundancies, and if we look at global trade, is is there an argument to say, well, I mean, there's a reason that these sectors have struggled, and it's like global trade just hasn't been a theme really for a while, right? I mean, when was the last time anyone was really excited about buying emerging market or frontier market stocks? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're hitting the big picture on the head. I think a lot of folks do miss the point that you're bringing up. That look, I mean, emerging markets. You call it the BRICS, right? That that was a big trade in 2000s, and shipping was a big trade. And you know, in the 2010s, it's been you know social media and you know tech 2.0 and and whatnot. So it's it's been a different sort of a trade over the last 10 years. And you know, it hasn't just been. People say value's dead, but there's been a lot of value stocks that have you know made a killing. Look, I mean, Microsoft was a was a value stock really trust um, me I, I was a microsoft I, I wrote an article about the end is near for microsoft in like 2010 is gonna kill this company and yeah microsoft office is still going strong yeah no it was it was remarkable and, and look i mean apple was a value stock for several years um you know stocks like cisco and intel so look i mean it, it values all over the place so i think value versus growth sometimes is oversimplified i think you i think you did a better job of slicing it up when you talked about kind of emerging markets and and sort of frontier markets i think that was a good way to slice it up in terms of i think sort of your underlying question about the new supply chains uh looking at like resiliency and redundancy and that sort of thing look i think that is concerning for someone who is a container ship investor, right? Container ships are all retail goods like Walmart, Amazon, that kind of stuff. So I think if you're investing in those kind of ships and you start seeing US-China ties start getting frayed a little bit, or you start seeing people get a little bit more nationalistic, I think you kind of stay away from maybe some of those investments. But when we look at tankers or LNG or LPG, liquefied petroleum gas, like propane, right? When we look at those trades, those are energy, right? And those basically come from producers and consumers and you can't really you know you could i suppose sort of ultra nationalize your energy stream but it would take decades and be super inefficient it's not like it's a lot easier to start making bicycles and trinkets at home than it is to start like drilling new oil wells at home you know i mean we've well i don't know i mean like at, at the i mean if you look at the u.s shale industry they haven't made money in a decade you would think it was a nationalized industry but it, it it's a for-profit <laughs> Well, it might be it might be pretty nationalized if we wait another year. Who knows? I mean, you know, I actually have strong views on this whole topic anyway, in general, because when I look at it, I mean, I went, th I've gone through several points, like I was shorting frac sand companies in 2015. That was the last time I really got deep into a specific theme. It got almost as weird and crazy because it's so simplified as we saw in shipping, like around 08. There was a point where you would just, you know, secure some access to frac sand in Wisconsin, Minnesota, sign a long-term supply agreement with one of the oil services majors. And it was just like, oh, this is like free money. Private equity was all over it. They IPO'd a bunch of these stocks in, in 14 and, and early 15. And even as oil had started to blow up in 15, I was shorting a company called Emerge Energy Services. This stock had gone from like 20 to 100 in like six months. My rationale then was like, these contracts don't hold up when you have a bust. And 
the, the argument was, oh, these companies are going to be okay because they have long-term agreements and there's you know, commitments and, you know, Halliburton and Schlumberger have to buy X, Y, and Z. And then and this is, and lo and behold, you know, Emerge actually went bankrupt, I think, last year. Now, I mean, I was like, I made some money on the trade. Like, I think the stock almost doubled before it actually started falling when I was in it and it fell like 80% and then probably fell another 80%. But I remember looking at that market then, it's one of those things where you do the calculations on paper and you're like, okay, they're going to make this much money. It, it's a no brainer. It's locked in at this level and there's this much shortage in the market. And then something just kind of changes overnight, which is like reminds you of, of how commodity a market can be. And I think with tankers, one thing that's really always really frustrating, which I mean, like, it's it's funny, you don't run into it as much in software or even debating tech stocks or or even stuff like Chipotle or whatever, is the science can be a total mindfuck. Because, I mean, I've had people, experts on both ends, when I spent a lot of time on shale, where it was like, the depletion rates are going to blow up and US production is going to collapse. And the flip side being like, uh, you know, U.S. production is just continuing to grow and we're going to make a killing. And neither of those things have happened because production has taken off, but everyone's lost money. I, I remember at the end of last year, the CEO of EQT was like, there's been no industry that has had more innovation and that innovation has been so detrimental to it than the U.S. shale industry. Right. It's like airlines and it's like airlines in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, right? I mean, it was just boom and bust and bust and bust and bust and a little bit of a boom and a bust. And, you know, it's just it's just a weird, crazy place. But it's crazy when you think about it. I mean, we were we were at we were at like five and a half million barrels a day in 2010. And sitting here to that, like February of this year or whatever, you're at 13 million, 13 million barrels per day production. I mean, it's seismic in terms of what changed in that market. And, That's remarkable. and when you go back and you look at the economy globally pre-coronavirus, you know, Trump's got this whole uh, argument that things were going amazing. Really, like, yeah, the, domestically in the US from a services end, things look good in the consumer, but globally, things weren't good. Like if you looked at global trade, it, was, like, it, it wasn't a party. So if you, if you talk to people in like Brazil and, and uh, Russia and India and China, you know, I mean, uh, particularly with the trade war of the, of the last, you know, what, let's call it 18 months and whatnot, global trade wasn't exactly something that was booming before we came into this. So when you look at this like environment going forward, is there an argument to be made that the energy market could have, let's call it like a, a structural disruption? Because there's two ways to look at, at, at these dynamics. You could make the case that inflation is coming and like you could see a, a huge swing in the, in the oil market. Not exactly supply and, and demand driven, just like a rebalancing at a higher price because of, let's call it money printing, you know, worldwide, right? Do you, is that something you think is a distinct possibility? And then that, that filters in, into everything? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's certainly possible. And, you know, I, I do look at all these things. I, I try not to get too far off on, you know, uh, energy or global macro too much, right? I mean, I pay attention to it. I read all the reports that are out there. I, I try not to be a prognosticator myself, if that makes sense. I, I just kind of read all the reports that are out there and kind of take a blended average of the forecasts. Um, and then I focus on the fundamentals of the shipping stocks, right? And and so, you know, like I mentioned with container ships, I, I definitely understand the headwinds in that market. And, you know, I'm not real comfortable, you know, getting long and staying long a container ship company. Uh, with a crude tanker company, look, I mean, you, you, you nailed it earlier. Look, you're making five years of profits in, in six months or less. 2021 is going to be rocky, but the balance sheets are the best they've ever been. The company is going to be fine. Nothing seismic is going to happen to this company in 2021, no matter how bad the market is. And if the market's really bad, the ship, the, the balance of the fleet is the oldest across the industry. So we're going to have unprecedented scrapping. And, and right, you, you said you nailed it earlier. Again, you said commodities correct themselves and shipping, you know, ships are commodities. So the if the market gets really bad, the old ships are all going to get scrapped, and then in 2022 we're going to have a great market again. So you know that's that's kind of how I look at things. Whether or not U.S. shale goes bust or or there's this huge you know cataclysmic change, um, I don't quite know yet. Right, it's an interesting possibility. The U.S. growth in shale has been remarkable because U.S. consumption has been flat or down since like 2005. 
right? So like US is exporting a significant amount of oil and that's been sort of like the new paradigm for shipping is that US is exporting now to Asia. And it wasn't, you know, it used to be China and then we had the trade war and then it shifted over to Korea. And now China is starting to buy oil again. And look, US exports to China are double the distance of the Middle East to China. So even if OPEC starts cutting a little bit, if the U.S. keeps exporting their surplus, and then you and I were just talking about how the WTI is totally jammed, right? The U.S. has to export more oil here for at least a little bit. Um, that's actually short-term bullish as well. So there's just very interesting dynamics going on across the space. Yeah, I mean, stru structurally, it's it's a market where you look at it, you say the back half of this year is could be just as crazy as the front half of this year has been. And then when we get to 2021, like where do things balance out? That's a, that's a better question. I like I agree with you. Like I, it, it's a market where, like you get one person in one ear, one person in the other. But you're doing a good job of convincing me that as far as the shipping side, it's almost you know, an agnostic way to play this. <laughs> yeah, and it just depends on your segment, right? The shipping is actually like eight different sub segments. So when you know we say shipping, a lot of people put all the boats in one basket, but you know tankers are completely different than dry bulk, right? It's completely yeah. So obviously, than... dry bulk market right now, for we didn't get, even get into that. Like you know the 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 flooding in Brazil, Vale's uh, supply. So like iron ore, for example, it hasn't collapsed, but the Baltic did. Right. Right. It's just been un unfortunate for dry bulk, right? It was it was looking pretty good in 2019, and then we had the Valley Dam collapse, and it was looking pretty good in 2020, and then we had COVID. So, you know, it's just dry bulk is such a play on a Chinese recovery that you're basically just completely throwing all your ships on the table and saying, please, China, don't screw it up. Okay, so here's a question for you then. So, the, so would you say the between September and February, the the BDSI was down like what, like 70, 80 percent, or something like that? Well, the BDI is, is super seasonal. So a lot of that move, it, it almost always peaks in the fall and it almost always crashes into February. And that's because the Chinese New Year, right? The Lunar New Year is at the very start of February or end of January. And so that, you know, in China, they take basically like a two or three week holiday, right? For that period. So economic activity just basically collapses for like three weeks and it rebounds, they do it every year. And so the BDI is very seasonal. So I think a lot of that fall to winter downturn was mostly seasonal, right? And then we got COVID, which is complete. I mean, they completely shut the country off. Dry bulk is just, if you're yeah, buying so you dry did, bulk stocks did now- you hit, like Did you hit rates that were, I mean, like, did we take out the, the 2016 or 15 lows? Uh, no, we didn't. The all-time lows were February, 2016. We did not take those out overall for the BDI. I think the Cape size rates might've set a new low. Okay. But did it come close? Yeah. I mean, more or less, we're talking a few thousand bucks. I mean, pretty close. So then, the, so, so let's say this, let's rewind. So my question is the strength in the market at the end of last year on the dry bulk end, was that China trade tension easing driven? Well, I don't know that so much. I think it was more so recovering from Valet because the Valet Dam collapse happened in the early 2019. So iron ore spiked, right? Because Valet pulled a lot of supply off the market. So the iron ore spiked and China is a very smart buyer, right? They've learned a lot over the years. So China basically stopped importing iron ore and they drew down all their stocks, right? So the stock pile of iron went from like 120 days down to like 15. And so China wakes up in like June or July. And Valet is back online. Well, not all the way, but mostly back online. And China's like, oh no, we need to start buying iron ore again. So there's like this big rush to like build their stocks back up. Oh, interesting. So you really had like uh, some crazy inventory dynamics around that last year. I mean, I haven't followed it closely. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point, right? Like you were saying, uh, like the shipping markets are obviously very different segments. Uh, like, so like you actually have one extreme and one end being driven by. China, Brazil, and 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 supply constraints. Let's call it. Then you've got this storage thing in the and in the oil market, all kind of occurring against this backdrop of global trade. So I guess you are you are making a, a point though, where it's almost you're almost convincing me that spending at least from 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 my standpoint that spending more time on on the shipping space where you're selling me almost on an asymmetric trade here. What's my downside? Well, I think it's I think it's always good to, to pay attention to the whole market, like you said. And and in terms of tankers, the the downside, look, the downside is the rates collapse tomorrow and they just don't recover all year. And 2021 is terrible. And for some reason, 
none of these companies do the logical thing and scrap their ships. That would be like your downside, right? Like everybody does the absolute dumbest thing. The commodity market doesn't correct itself and the global economy is just in the pits. So what's the rationale for, for like not, why would they not scrap the ships, for example? I mean, there, there really isn't a rationale, right? I mean, the banks will force them to, right? Because they'll have covenants that come due and they'll have uh, special surveys they have to pay for. And there's this new regulation called IMO 2020 that kicked in this year. That oh, makes operating costs Exactly, the low sulfur emission regulation, which makes the upgrades and dry doxings of these companies a lot more expensive. So it automatically starts to like force out the older tonnage. So yeah, I don't think, I, I don't think the super bearish case has very much merit. But I do think there's a case where you could buy some of these tanker stocks today and you could maybe just, it could be like dead money for like a year or a year and a half, the worst case panned out. I don't think these companies, very few of them have, have terrible balance sheets. Um, most of them have gotten their act together. So I don't think it's like you're going to flame out and lose all your money. I think it would be like this dead money trade that you just, you just hate seeing it in your portfolio because you've had it for a year and you're like, oh man, frontline, oh, you know. Are you, would you characterize, like, I mean, it seems to be a theme. I mean, like when you look at the, industry in general like for example right now there's a lot of stocks macro exposed that the equity really is trading around zombie companies type fashion like let's take a company like uh amc theaters okay Uh, business shut down but before covid19 uh over levered large shareholder from China, certain types of constraints, et cetera, et cetera. Restructuring has been floated around and I, I have friends in the space and it's always a topic. And this comes along and the general assumption is, there you go, AMC equity is zero, finally over time to restructure. And the stock keeps bouncing around though, as if that's not going to happen. So you get like, you have you have a, a an equity value relative to an enterprise value that trades like a stop an option and that that thing moves around essentially as as a as a byproduct of well okay they they may not file now they may get some covenant relaxation so on and so forth but you you still look at it from let's say if i was a long term investor i'd be like this is a zero there's no getting around it and then you go look at the at where the credits are trading and they're 25 30 cents on the dollar but the equity is going from like 100 million to 500 million and back to 200 million and then up to 500 million. And 500 million isn't exactly chump change from, from a paper value for something like this. But like when you look at the shipping space and you talk about the health, you wouldn't characterize like because they've been going through this for so long and, 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 and essentially getting by on the famine. Like it's, you wouldn't say that there's, there's a zombie type problem at all in the space. No, I, I think there's a couple stub equities in the shipping space that keep, you know, diluting a little bit and kicking the can down the road. But those are these tiny little companies with market caps of like 10 or 20 million that no one's really talking about anymore. It's sort of like, you know, dry ships used to be a big one, right? There's there's dry ships used to be kind of in that boat, right? A few years ago. There's a couple small companies out there today. There's one called, and I'm actually long this company. It's called Navios Maritime Acquisition. Okay, I've heard of that company before. Stocks yeah. called NNA. Yeah, they're they're fifty percent basically VLCCs, so these big crude carriers we've been talking about, and fifty percent MRs, medium range product carriers. Both markets are like red hot right now, but Navios is like ninety seven percent levered debt to assets. Product product, you mean like refined crude? Exactly, gasoline. stocks. Okay, yeah, 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 jet fuel and such. Yep. So you know, the stock is ninety seven percent levered. So this is the kind of stock where in one really good quarter, you can have like a triple bagger or some quad bagger just in a quarter, but one really bad quarter and you go bankrupt. So NNA is, I guess, one of those types of companies. Um, other than that, I think most of the companies really have good balance sheets and, and have their stuff together. Okay. Jay, I wanted to jump back in because I feel like lingering, and maybe we can wrap on this, lingering behind what, what I see on Twitter, for example, when people are raising questions about shipping. And I think just the doubts about shipping in general and i enjoy i post your podcast on seeking alpha so i get to review the notes i often will listen and every time you're asking about capital allocation right that's always a top thing and you've talked about supplies and or the ships are in pretty good balance right now i i I think the fear that i hear from other investors is essentially you can't trust management teams they're just going to overbuild again there's no Prove it to me. And the way you've framed 
the upside, I think you said it with Frontline as the example, is, well, they, they can just pay this huge dividend for a couple quarters, almost so that they take the cash off their own hands so that it doesn't burn a hole in your in your balance sheet. And so I guess I'm curious about how you address that and then how you sort of distinguish when you're looking for the best opportunities, how are you distinguishing, you know, when you're talking on your service or whatever else, how are you distinguishing between the, like, is that a big factor or what else do you distinguish? So I guess it's a two-part question. It's the management question. And then how does that lead to when you're trying to break down what the best opportunities are, like what else is going into that given this, you've talked about the different sectors, but this sounds like it's still to a generalist like me, it still sounds like the shipping sector writ large. So how are you distinguishing as you get deeper in? Yeah, absolutely. Capital allocation has been, I guess, like kind of a sin of the past that keeps getting revisited. And, you know, there's kind of, it's sort of like an outdated trope that shipping companies are all terrible capital allocators and that they have bad corporate governance. That was kind of a, a 2005 to 2012 kind of run where we had a lot of these, these companies that shouldn't have been on the markets uh, took advantage of that bubble, right? And they went, and this, the same thing happens to biotech or technology stocks, right? Whenever there's a bubble, all these like kind of like maybe not bad actors, but just sort of like unprofessional actors sort of come public and and that kind of happened in shipping. But look, I mean, we're not in shipping because we want to own a bunch of boats. We want to be like captains of the sea, right? We're in shipping to make money, right? So we're buying when the cycle's low and we're, we're going to be selling when the cycle's rising. Um, so, you know, I pick management teams that understand that, right? Management teams that realize that their only job is to create the best return on capital and best return on equity. So those are the companies that we invest with. And, you know, when I call a, a management company and I talk with the CFOs and CEOs almost on a daily basis, definitely a weekly basis on many of these companies. And, and so like we had that interview with Frontline, but that was only, that's one of like 25 interviews we've done this year. So, right, we, we have close contact with the management team. So I have, a, you know. Yeah, your access is phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's been great. And, and, you know, that's what comes with being in the industry for more than a decade, right? So like they know who I am and who the audience is and, and so on. When I talk to a management team and they tell me their number one goal is to like renew and modernize and expand the fleet, you know, I just take a little like Sharpie marker and <laughs> cross that one out, you know, so we make, we make sure that we're with management teams that have the right priorities. So would you say that that's, I mean, obviously there's the sector level dynamics, the difference between containers and tankers, but is that then where you focus most or are you focusing more on like, obviously there's no one factor, but like, what do you, how are you distinguishing when you dive into the tanker segment with where you want to, where you want to spend your time and you know, and what, what, what are the, what are the companies that stand out in all of that? I mean, is it, is frontline front of the line or are there other companies there? Absolutely. It's a, it's a good question. And I, I'm not going to run through you know every company that we cover on the service. That would be a, a disservice to our members, but I will give you a broad picture view. Look, we, we look at the cycle, where are these companies at in, in the overall market cycle? And tankers are one that you know they're, they're at sort of like the money generation stage, right? They're at, I don't say the peak, but they're, they're at that sort of lucrative stage of the market. And then we look at the valuations of the underlying assets and where those sit on, on a broad 20, 30 year perspective. And then we look at the price NAV and how cheap are these companies, the price, the cash flow, how much cash generation are they generating? So like we have holdings in dry bulk. I was saying all these bad things about container ships, but look, I, we own several container ship stocks. Um, so it just all depends on the valuation that we're getting offered. But if someone, uh, if someone comes to me with a container ship stock, I'm going to demand a much, much larger discount than I'm going to demand for say a product tanker company. Um, so you mentioned a couple favorite uh, tanker companies since that's kind of the hot topic. Frontline's a great company, but their valuations are a little bit higher than the others. So we actually don't have a long position in them now. Uh, one of my favorites is Diamond S, stock symbol DSSI. Uh, they're actually going to report this Friday, uh, the 7th as well, excuse me, the 8th. And then uh, International Seaways, INSW, we're long that one as well. That's another favorite. They report this Thursday, the 7th. And then Scorpio Tankers, I'm not sure when this is going to air live, but Scorpio Tankers reports Wednesday morning, the 6th. And so those are kind of, so NSSTNG, we're long there as well. So Sting, uh, Scorpio Tankers, DSSI, Diamond S, and INSW, International Seaways are kind of our top three um, in the tanker space right now. You got a busy week. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. We got uh, 12 earnings reports across three days. How, by the way, how spread out is, is, is the sector? I mean, like if you, 
would you say in terms of like number of names that you pay attention to and market cap kind of like top weighted to like you were saying earlier a couple of micro caps that are floating around like options yeah so the largest company it's a, yeah it's a good question um there's about 65 companies in the space if you count everything and we cover 54 of them so we cover the majority um we don't cover like the ultra micro caps like some of the shady if it has like really bad corporate governance like i don't even talk about it i don't i won't even mention the name good or bad uh in in that case um so we cover about 54 names and the smallest market cap we cover is probably around uh nna is one of them so probably like 60 million and then the highest one is about 2 billion so like if you were to take the whole segment and add them up, what's what's the aggregate market value? Oh man, I'd pull it out of my pull it out of my pocket right now, but probably like seven billion, six billion, somewhere in there. So like what like Apple moves in a minute. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely talking a smaller game. I and mean, then look, that's it's how freaking we freaking crazy the that's the, how we profit, you know. The the structural changes seen like I I remember I mean, how high did dry did dry ships get in in '07 or '08? I mean, it was like way up in the billions in market cap by oh, itself. It was, it was phenomenal. Yeah, dry ships alone. I think if you take two high flyers, I think dry ships was a high flyer, and I think Frontline back then was a high flyer. Uh, Frontline was a legitimate company, of course. Uh, dry ships had some other problems, but if you took both those companies' market caps and added those together, those two market caps are higher than like the 54 I covered today. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just. That's crazy. That's, those are the types of things where you look at it and you're like, when will that change again? And that's kind of the the intrigue. Yeah. It's going to be, if we ever get to that position, the ride up to that position is just going to be beautiful, right? It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of profits made. Yeah, that's where but you want to be. We, but once we get to that position, it's going to be tough for me, right? Because I'm going to be like, hey guys, avoid this whole sector. <laughs> well, like I mean, look, research, that's, right? that, that's the where you don't want to be that guy, right? Because like, if you've been covering something for a while, you're going to develop a bias where when it starts getting too good, you're going to get unsettled a little bit. And it's there's going to be that desire as that guy who's been like riding it out throughout the, you know, a decade of it, this not being, you know, uh, a popular a, a popular segment. And once it becomes popular, the, the pressure to be like, yeah, time to take some chips off the table. Uh, and you're going to have idiots who are going to show up and they're just going to be riding the momentum. And they'd be like, yeah, okay, what the fuck does he know now? Like he said, exit here. And like, what, if it turns into a momentum space, because you're going to have every single person is going to become an expert again. Right. Well, that's crazy. And that's what makes me, and you're right, that's what makes me more unsettled because I'm more of a value-oriented guy. And look, we make all our money mostly on volatility. So people say it's been a terrible sector, but you know, we've made a lot of money over the last five years on value investment. Yeah, you can trade it. There's a lot of cycles, a lot of cycles up and down. You've got what something going on in the dry bulk end, you have something going on in the crude end, and then you got something going on in the tanker end, and you've got like there's always different dynamics. It's a good it's it's a good segmentation. Because like you're saying, like even right now, you, you, you essentially have had two opposite trades, right? Yeah, very, very interesting dynamic. So there's always something, right? There's always something to be long. There's always something to maybe sort of avoid. And it's not just one big monolith. Okay. Really good stuff, guys. Really, I don't think yeah, you thanks, get... Th thanks, thanks a lot, Jay. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to put this together and then throw me the questions. And I like reading your stuff on Seeking Alpha. So hopefully we'll keep doing stuff like this. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, last, just before we hang up disclosures, guys, Jay, you, those three stocks were it, DSSI, INSW, and the Sting, Scorpio? Uh, Scorpio Tankers, and then uh, Navios Acquisition in and right. as well. Right. Okay. I don't think I, uh, Facebook, yeah. amazingly, is the relevant disclosure in a shipping conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook takes over our lives. So I don't have any... Unless we mentioned, I don't think we mentioned any of my stocks. So I've, I'm very tempted. I have an order out. The one stock, I one thing I've owned in the sector is the TGP preferred B shares, which probably not worth going into. But that that's the one name in the sector that I've looked at, and I don't think. Oh. That nice. That's a good income. Good income name. You'd be all right. It's ever it's a favorite on among the you know there are several authors I like on Seeking Alpha who have covered it so I'm I'm waiting for it to drop a little but that's 
story of my life really nice well hey it hit 14 bucks uh about six weeks ago so you just got <laughs> i know i was obviously asleep at the wheel on a lot of stuff in march but oh, where, where is it now it's like 21 22 ish yeah it's a nine percent 25 par so at 21 it's like 11 percent or something yeah so it's an interesting uh story but all right well thanks so much guys and uh yeah best of luck in both of your areas and we'll we'll have to do a crossover like this again in the future. 